Welcome to the AMM podcast. I'm Andrew Michael Metter, and today I'm going to be discussing how do we begin a biomimicry journey with Lily Ehrman. Hey, y'all. I'm Lily. I am a biomimic, an educator, and a nature communicator. I am part-time faculty at Pratt University, where I am teaching my class biology for biomimicry the first time this semester. And I'm also a startup co-founder. Um, I completed the Biomimicry Master's program in May of 2020, and I'm really excited to be here with you, Andrew. We would be remiss if we didn't start off by simply defining what biomimicry is. Yeah, that's a really good place to start. Um, biomimicry is a practice and a methodology that aims to design more life-friendly tools and products inspired by nature's forms, processes and systems. So starting from the form level, which is oftentimes the most straightforward, looking at the shape of a whale fin, for example, and how they efficiently move through water and applying that similar shape to a wind turbine fin and how wind turbines can generate more power with less wind um, based on just simply redesigning the, the form of um, the wind turbine, which is really exciting. And so there's endless applications to learn from nature and then apply it to human design in every sector, agriculture, medicine, um, technology, transportation, everything you can think of. Um, there's, a, there's something out there that has accomplished our challenges and has solved for the challenges that we're facing now and has honed that over millions of years. Um, and so it's a humbling practice and also a really hopeful practice. For me also, just um, briefly, I have a background in like environmental studies and was kind of knee deep in a climate movement um, and really excited about um, building community for climate solutions, especially as we face ongoing crises in the world. And biomimicry for me became um, a light of hope. And I think that's something that's not talked about as much, um, but I think it's really important as we face these very daunting challenges that can be overwhelming. Um, and there's you know, solutions out there for us already that have been um, designed and honed. They're beautiful and they're brilliant. And sometimes they're really simple, but learning from the natural world offers us immense opportunity to solve for a lot of our challenges. So I'm currently, I'm almost halfway through the master's program of biomimicry through ASU. It's a great program. And I do education and curriculum development for the Biomimicry Institute. So just as background for anyone listening, we're both very passionate about this. This isn't something that we're just kind of approaching from the side. Like we care about this deeply. And I would say for me with biomimicry, not only do I get to engage my curiosity and learn about animals, learn how the natural world works. I think biomimicry is a superior design thinking approach because it's holistic. Mm -hmm. It encapsulates humbling yourself, like there's the phrase quieting your cleverness. It calls you to go out and reconnect with the natural mm -hmm. world, which in the built environment, we can become so numb and just callous to <laughs> the natural world. You're caught up in how good we are at doing certain things like designing or yeah. building technology, which isn't to say that some things, you know, we've built are genuinely good design, but yeah, nature has a ton more opportunity for us to learn from. And so I love just the, there's the creative, there's the scientific, like the engineering side of mm -hmm. uh, abstracting a product from an organism. Yeah. The, it's a huge, um, 
attraction. And that's kind of what drew me into the community as well. It's a community of people who are deeply connected with the natural world and curious about the natural world. So much so that, you know, they're taking inspiration and borrowing lessons from these organisms that have been around much longer than we have, and then applying that in every field and every discipline. So there's, yeah, it's a really exciting field. I also want to say um, it is quoted as uh, an emerging field, but an ancient discipline. And I think that's something that um, biomimics around the world are knowledgeable of and carry carry with them a little bit of, you know, indigenous cultures and peoples who have been around for millennia learning from the land have been practicing quote unquote biomimicry for much longer, but it hasn't been coined that term. And so I think in academia in the last 40 years, there's been an increase in classes and faculty interested in the more like the structured and, you know, kind of westernized biomimicry term, um, especially around education. Like there's a curriculum around it for, the, for example, the master's program at ASU. There's undergrad programs on it now. But also like recognizing that as an ancient practice is something important um, to hold close as we um, take this journey together. So let's say someone is really interested. We've sparked their interest by giving them a little taste of what biomimicry is. How should someone get started? How should someone begin exploring? The first one I would suggest is reading. There's a ton out there as far as curriculum, um, free curriculum that you can access. For for example, the Janine Benyus book in the 90s, um, some of the innovations are at this point a little dated just because it's been 30 years. Um, but she, she wrote an incredible book called Biomimicry, Innovation Inspired by Nature. And that's where a lot of people start because it will give a really good, beautifully written description of what is biomimicry and then go through a ton of different sectors that it can be applied to. So that's a great place to start. And then also other books that I recommend that I actually have here that I use in a lot of the classes I teach and workshops I lead. Um, a big one is the book by Dana Baumeister, who um, runs the ASU master's program and also teaches a lot of the classes. She co-founded the consulting firm with Janine Benyus. Um, so she's also like a thought leader in the field. And she wrote the Biomimicry Resource Handbook, which is a great, um, great tool and resource. And it's mm -hmm. less about the, you know, the broader biomimicry methodology and how it can be applied, but more specifics, like how to practice it and how to actually, you know, design from nature and abstract design principles from biology. And so that's a, a really great um, resource if, you, if someone wants to get a little bit more nitty gritty. Um, and then also just like being curious about a ton of different reading materials that might not be biomimicry related, but are related to the field. So I'm really excited about mycelial networks and like old growth forest communication right now. And there's a ton of application space for that in biomimicry. Um, but Suzanne Samara is a great researcher and she just came out with a new book called Finding the Mother Tree. That's what it's called. Really incredible book. Talks about her research, walking through forests and how she's starting to understand how all these species are connected and communicating and sharing resources and how because they collaborate and cooperate, they're better able to survive, especially after disasters and with logging and everything. So but there's a ton of stuff out there. Sharks, paintbrush, teaming. Um, a ton of really, really wonderful books. There's a new book on biomimicry in business. Um, other, yeah, there's a lot of reading material out there. And that's, I think, a really great place to start and to spark that curiosity. And then going out to nature, 
the one of the most important parts of biomimicry. So for those folks who are less familiar, there's kind of three elements of biomimicry. Reconnect, and the re is in parentheses, with the intention that we are, you know, we are always connected to nature. We are nature, but we need to kind of rebuild that relationship a little bit because we've been, um, you know, living in post-industrial world where we were a little bit further separated from it. Um, and going into nature, reconnect is one of those elements. And then there's emulate, which is kind of the one we're all familiar with, where we design something based on nature's forms, processes, or systems, and ethos, which kind of relates to what you were talking about earlier, Andrew, um, kind of this, like the morale, like why do we practice biomimicry? What does this thinking and perspective have to offer us on a broader level rather than just products we're creating? How can we create a place that's conducive to all life, not just humans? And I think that's a deeper conversation that we could have a whole conversation about too. But the reconnect piece is, is one of my favorite and one of my one of the most important elements that I always tell people um, to look into really early on. Because going into nature, nature being your backyard, your patio, walk around the block, or even somewhere really remote, because um, we, you know, everywhere is nature. That's kind of the ultimate idea. Um, but that's a crucial and fundamental part to starting your biomimicry journey is going out there and being curious and asking questions. Why are these plants growing under this other plant? Why is there, you know, why are these organisms that are adapted to this certain temperature, but the temperature isn't the same as a different ecosystem? There's all these really incredible complexities of a natural system and starting to dive into, you know, why and how is a really great place to start. And so that's kind of the biggest um, recommendation I would I would give to folks and especially getting out to nature and asking questions and, and building that curiosity. Starting with books, either starting a nature journal is something that I recommend and something I build into all my classes. Um, I think ever more important it is becoming that we kind of disconnect from the technology that we're relying on so much um, and take some time away in, in a natural environment without the screens. Um, and that, that deeper connection and building that relationship back is, is ever more important. There's a shift, at least for me, in going from learning about nature to learning from nature. Exactly. Yeah, that's a really good distinction. And so learning about nature is important and it's part of reconnecting, right? It's like, what is this plant that I'm seeing? And I, and I actually really love the book um, Breeding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer uh, as well, because she has a beautiful perspective of when you go into a new place, when you're hiking in a new area, it's a sign of respect to go and learn the names of the plants and the trees and the birds and the things that have lived there well before you visited, right? And so I think learning about nature is an important aspect to natural history and a starting point for biomimicry. But then learning from nature is kind of acknowledging, okay, I know this is, you know, this kind of plant. What is it doing that we can learn from? What function does it have that we can translate to design and borrow inspiration from? And I think that's a big piece of biomimicry too, is understanding the biology or natural history and then translating it to design. That translation piece can be really difficult and really daunting. Um, but there's also a lot of great resources on asknature.org, one of my favorite websites ever. It's a really well-built website by the Biomimicry Institute. I'm, from, I'm very sure you're familiar with it. Um, but it's like a really great tool 
And I don't like comparing things to Google, but, but it's kind of like Google for nature and innovations. And you can put in the search bar, you know, how does nature protect against pathogens? A really relevant example right now. And it'll give you a collection of natural organisms that do that and then innovations that are inspired by them. So there's a ton of opportunity there. And that's kind of the last biggest piece of like the journey of biomimicry exploration of diving into research and starting to understand how the, how the world works. I think getting started is much easier than so many other fields with biomimicry, because like you said, you can just go outside and observe things directly yeah, and ask questions and wonder. And then, I mean, it can stay there. You can go to the primary mm -hmm. literature. You can look up all these things and right now in the age of technology. We have an incredible wealth of resources yep. to be able to find things out. Oh, by what mechanism is this occurring that I saw? Yeah, exactly. And I think to a certain extent, so many people kind of already have that baseline curiosity of going out into the wild or their backyard or a park and being inspired or thinking more about how the organisms are in relation to each other or why certain flowers uh, bloom during certain times or whatever it is. Like, I think a lot of people and even like really young kids, it doesn't discriminate on age or anything. Like people are super interested in the natural world and building that curiosity is, is uh, universal. I think it, there's so much to be inspired by. It's just an endless, endless collection of cool stuff out there that we get to learn from. I love bird watching. I love going outdoors. And I think something that's also just as a side note, it's important to mention, you mentioned indigenous practices and there's a lot of socio-political movements that I follow. One of them is Bird Names for Birds, which is trying to build equity back into the natural world and how we talk about those things. I love that. Um, so like I was camping in Rocky Mountain National Park last summer and reading about Clark's Nutcracker and Lewis's Woodpecker and seeing this big movement to change those names. Yeah, and there's there's so much to be said about that movement. And I think I'm hesitant to talk a ton about it just because I'm a white person. Um, but there's a lot of really great reading out there, like Robin Wall Kimmerer, for example, and Melissa Nelson, who I was lucky enough to collaborate with at ASU. She's an indigenous scholar and wrote the book on traditional ecological knowledge. And that's a great place to start to begin understanding other perspectives of, um, learning from and understanding the natural cycles and natural world and organisms that we share our planet with. So anyways, all that to say, I love bird watching. But it's so true. I mean, think about even the names we use. They're colonized a lot of white Western names. And I think understanding, at least starting to understand and recognize that when you go out and, and learn about plants and animals, a lot of the plant books I have are going to be Latin names and Western names. Um, and so I think that's just, it's a really good thing to, to note for sure. Yeah. So my favorite example of biomimicry, I mean, it definitely changes, but in general, it would be Ornilux bird safe glass. So a German scientist was studying why spiders weave different types of strands into their web. And so a scientist was curious, why do they do this zigzag pattern? Why does it look like they're writing in their web? And that led them to find out that this specific fiber that they are weaving is ultraviolet reflective which is a type of light that comes from the sun. And so they basically figured out that, oh, they're doing this as a sign to birds and other flying animals, don't fly through my web. 
-hmm. And for us, we don't have the apparatus in our eyes to see ultraviolet light, but the birds do. And so this German scientist took this innovation. He was inspired by the spider's practice, and he started putting ultraviolet reflective fibers in windows. And so where to the human world, the built environment, the glass is still transparent, but it all but stopped collisions with buildings and with reflective surfaces because of this innovation that was inspired by spiders. Yeah, and those glass windows and the big skyscrapers are a huge killer for native birds and mm -hmm. migrating birds. A ton of bird species die every year based just flying into windows that we've built and blocked their, their path of flight with. So really cool innovation. Also really cool because a lot of Ornolux, I mean, it can be made kind of new, quote unquote, but it also can be uh, used to retrofit existing windows. There's like a coating that you can put on windows, which doesn't require any new materials to be made, but it just retrofits the existing materials, which is equally as important as developing something brand new. Um, so I, I love that example. And it's really hard to think of my favorite innovation. <laughs> I feel like every week it's different. One that I'm excited about right now um, is a company called Muscle Polymers. They just recently um, developed a really cool underwater adhesive. And our typical glues that can be used underwater are not great. They don't stick very well. And they're made with terribly toxic chemicals, which then, of course, leach into the environment and all of that. Um, so we have a really poor way of attaching underwater. But mussels have a really great way of attaching underwater. Um, they attach to rocks, and then they they're hit by the tides constantly. They are super strong attachments. Um, and so this company, one researcher actually specifically, was interested in developing a glue and noticed how strong muscles were. And so they mimicked this process, which is another thing to note. Biomimicry kind of has three stages. I said form, process, and system. Form being the most straightforward, kind of easiest to grasp. Process is a little bit more difficult. So the process of a muscle attaching to rock underwater involves like a little foot appendage that kind of comes out and scopes an area and then finds a spot where it wants to land. And then it secretes a series of proteins that are complicated, um, but they're, they basically like prime the surface and then make sure that the surface is like hard. And then the bissel threads, which are these kind of like other tiny little hair-like threads that come out of the bottom of the muscle can then attach to the ground. And this series of events that happens creates an incredibly strong bond um, that's really hard to break. Like if you've ever walked along the coastal um, California, or I'm not sure if they have muscles on the East Coast, but um, and try to take a muscle off the rock, it's pretty much impossible unless you get like a chisel, and like start getting in there. Um, but yeah, this company mimicked kind of that process with other plant-based derived chemicals um, and proteins. And then they are creating this synthetic glue that is just as strong, incredibly strong underwater. And they're using it for these really innovative um, applications. They're trying to get it to market right now to be used in coral restoration, which is an ongoing project that's super important. Um, but you're trying to attach kind of like nursery grown baby corals to the existing kind of dead coral reef. And unless you have a really strong efficient glue, they're going to fall off. Some fish is going to take it, blah, blah, blah. So this example is my current favorite. Um, it's super exciting. There's a ton of application underwater repairs. Um, and again, all of this glue is like life friendly um, and doesn't harm the environment around it and is based on something in nature that works really well. 
I did not explain the science well at all. Um, but if you want to, asknature.org has a really good explanation of all of that and actually video series on YouTube where they explain kind of a lot of really cool innovations. They just came out with a awesome, they're like cartoon almost videos that are a couple minutes long each. And they're a great deep, deep dive into um, some companies that won the Ray of Hope Prize or were finalists in the Ray of Hope Prize last year. Yeah, and I think with both of our examples, it illuminates another really important component of biomimicry, which is why do we need biomimicry? Is this just yeah. a passion project for people that need entertaining? Like, no, the way that our world, the human world is designed is incredibly toxic and harmful to the other species we share this earth with. Yep. Like with birds, there are hundreds of millions of birds that are killed every year from collisions, even with like spring migrations and people like with light pollution migrating at night. There's so many things, other ways that the built environment is harmful. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the toxic chemicals, the way that we do chemistry and in industrial processes requires all these toxic chemicals. Yep. These... Heat, beat and treat. Yep. Yeah. We, we heat things to really high extreme temperatures using a ton of energy and fossil fuels. We treat them with other toxic solutions and solvents that are down downstream terribly um, uh, polluter, terrible polluters to the entire ecosystem and to our bodies. Um, and then, you know, we either apply severe pressure or um, yeah, it's, it's not good. We kind of force chemistry to happen on our own terms, if that makes sense. And actually, one of the ways that I got really excited about biomimicry is through green chemistry. Um, and I think John Warner is the founder of, um, and kind of like the father of green chemistry. There's obviously lots of people practicing it, but he wrote one of the first books on it and it has like 12 principles around green chemistry and has an incredible Bioneers talk. So I recommend if anyone's interested to listen to it, it'll change your mind about chemistry. I think so early on in life, I was just like, I hate chemistry. I don't like balancing equations. It's boring. It's taught kind of like very like dry, right? It's like, I don't want to memorize this. <laughs> like I'm take a test on it. Um, mm -hmm. But chemistry is the foundation for everything. Um, and the natural world can do chemistry so beautifully and simply at room temperature with water as a solvent, with no extra pressure, sometimes capturing carbon from the air to use in chemical reactions. Um, and so John Warner in his talk is kind of um, giving some examples of how we can rethink our, our natural world and also talks about the education system, right? Because we have chemists and folks who take chemistry, but mostly people who want to become chemical engineers or chemists. Many of the universities, this was a couple years ago when he said this stat, but he said like 99% of the universities do not have an, an environmental toxicology class that is required hmm. for chemists, which is terrifying if you think about it. So they're going through these programs and years of intensive study, and then not actually having to learn about the downstream impacts on the ecosystem or human health. Um, and so they, these are the folks creating, quote unquote, the materials and the world in which we live that we expose ourselves to and our families to every day. And it's um, it was a big eye opener for me, I think, because I realized that biomimicry at kind of the chemistry level is super, super important to rethink how we build and create our world um, from a chemical perspective, because chemicals are everywhere and they're the basis of everything. Yeah, that's it's very compelling to me. Like my bachelor's is in chemistry and physics and I was not educated in those things. Could have very well been offered. And then I guess you could have taken like an elective, but did you have time for that? 
No, I mean, I was working, yeah. I was doing research, I was taking classes. Yeah. So, and that's, that's one component too with, with the order lux. I wish these things would become code. I wish these would be just rationalized, make sense. Oh, we understand the value in this and it has to be built to these specs, but that's not the world that we live in yet. Yeah. And I think a lot of what green chemistry is promoting and actually I graduated the master's program like one semester before they offered that green chemistry class. And I was insanely jealous because I actually really wanted to take that, but they're offering it now in the master's program, which is really cool um, from Mark Dorfman, who's an incredible chemist and really knows about life friendly chemistry. And it, I think it is taught in a way that's like, you have to memorize, you have to be like really smart, but if you, if you dive into it and get curious about something in nature, ultimately, if you keep asking why, it's going to take you back to some chemistry problem. Uh, um, some, and nature solving something that they need with the chemicals around them. And I think that's some, like something that really inspired me and that's something that's really beautiful is you can trace a lot of things back to chemistry. I mean, spider silk um, and creating really strong yet flexible materials. That's chemistry. Right. So I think that's a really good point of like me getting curious about my own topic, just like live here is like being curious about the world, regardless of whether you have experience in that field is also, I think, really important for biomimicry because it is so transdisciplinary and interdisciplinary. Like it spans all fields um, and there are, you know, chemists getting involved. There's material scientists, there's business folks um, from from every walk of life. I think biomimicry requires this collaboration from all these different fields. Um, and then don't get me even started on how siloed university systems are. But I think that's another thing about biomimicry and the beauty of the master's program is because it brings all these folks together from different disciplines and gets like gets them to work together and do projects together. And you're working with you know chemical engineers and material scientists and teachers um, and architects, and you, and you get to do these projects together and learn from nature. And you can see directly how it can be applied to all these different fields, which is super cool. Yeah, and not just that. Like my experience in the masters so far has been it is an international community. Yeah. Yeah, I had, I had hesitation when I was first signing up because I was like, ooh, a master's that's online in biomimicry? Like, how does that work? And how do I make sure that I'm getting the most out of it? But I was totally surprised because it's such a unique curriculum. You are immersed in this international community of people who are equally as excited to be there. That was a big mm -hmm. difference, I think, from undergrad too. Obviously, it was like everyone wants to be there. They're invested financially and monetarily and time-wise. So a lot of them already have careers. They already have families. So they're you know taking a lot of time out to do this program. And then also, yeah, just like the excitement and the network um, and so emphasized on going out into nature and doing the research in your own ecosystem and then coming back to this online community and sharing your findings. And I think that's where it was like totally worth it to me. It was like, oh, it's an online program because it, one, it has to be. A lot of the faculty are, are all over. Um, but two, it adds a, a ton, right? You're doing this program with people from all over the world. And then you still get to do the research and go hike in your own backyard or your own local park to like you know, do the assignments and then come back and submit them online at your own time, which is really cool. So I, I really loved it. And that is a program um, that I definitely recommend to all the folks who want to pursue like a higher, higher degree. A quote that really excites me and challenges me at the same time is from Janine Benyus. And it's that a sustainable world already exists. Mm -hmm. There's so much momentum, at least politically, around the buzzword of sustainability. Mm -hmm. 
And most people are approaching it from their own individual perspective. Oh, how can I be clever and create this mm -hmm. instead of looking into the entire complex, amazing system that's entirely sustainable that already exists in nature? Yeah. Yeah. I, I studied a lot of sustainability in my undergrad and was in part of the Student Environmental Center. We did a lot of sustainability projects, was part of the sustainability office. Um, and there is a ton of hype around the, the term sustainability. I think even more so in the last like five years, but I think it may, it's even turning more into right now a hype around the term regenerative, which is also a really interesting term. And both, I think regenerative is more a little bit more holistic. And I, I describe them as sustainability um, is like doing less bad. Like how can we create things that have less impact, that use less resources that then help future generations, you know, survive better with the resources they have. Again, knowing that we're all depleting resources and we're creating something. Regenerative is doing better, doing more good, which is in fact, you know, creating resources for the long run and kind of this like cyclical holistic perspective that if we design something, it should also regenerate the resources or energy or, you know, nutrients, whatever system it exists in, it regenerates those resources so it can keep succeeding on its own without additional resources. So it's creating positive impact rather than being neutral or just creating less bad impact, if that makes sense. Um, it's a very complicated topic. I have weeks on this in my class because I think students, um, especially younger students who are just now entering kind of the design sustainability world, they get excited about sustainability. And yeah, they immediately jump to the human cleverness perspective. What can I create? What can I build that is quote unquote sustainable? But biomimicry requires us to take a step back and, like you said, quiet that cleverness and look around us at what works and what has been working. And sometimes that is a really simple answer. Sometimes it's very complicated. At a systems level, biomimicry can be very complex. The relationships between organisms and the ecosystem and the habitat and all of that can get um, complicated fast. But it's all there. And I think that's a lot of um, what you're getting at, too. And what Janine, another quote from Janine that I love is um, the failures are fossils and what surrounds us is the secret to survival. And I think that's a really powerful quote, because if we are going to survive on this planet sustainably, right, um, and not just the human population, but ensure that our our neighbors, our organism neighbors, our plant neighbors, our fungi neighbors, our insect neighbors are all surviving as well. And we can reduce those, um, you know, endangered species lists and um, all of that. It's a holistic perspective. And I think that it requires a huge humbling step back, which can be scary for a lot of people who've been in a field for a long time and are familiar with being kind of the creator, the designer. Um, and, I, and that's a, a really important part of biomimicry. And something you see teaching as well when you ask students to do assignments in biomimicry early on, they will jump to that really quick. It's our default mode, and there's nothing necessarily bad with that. But learning how to take that step back um, takes time and is, is crucial to practicing biomimicry. It's humbling. And this is, I think, it's a deep conversation because sometimes when people think about biomimicry, they think of the like buzzword examples that have been in the news lately. Um, you know, some things that are like fighter jets inspired by peregrine falcons. And it's like, wait, technically that is mimicking nature, but is that creating um, space that's conducive to all life? Is that life-friendly design? <laughs> <laughs> so um, I'm not going to answer that for folks because I think different people have different opinions, but 
for me, biomimicry is um, a tool that enables us to learn from nature and apply it to create something that benefits not just humans, but the ecosystem in which it lives and the organisms in which it shares space with. Um, and it's regenerative in the long term. So it's not taking a bunch of resources away. Um, and it's actually like giving resources and ensuring that resources are there for all in the future, which is hard to do. It's really hard to have well-adapted biomimicry especially on a large scale and get that to market because the systems in which it exists, our transportation system, our material manufacturing system, our agriculture system, they don't allow designs like this to survive very long or very well, or they don't even allow them to be funded in, uh, at all in the first place. I think it's exciting because we're seeing more of it now and people are pushing those, those limits in the systems a little bit to um, question, you know, why is this design, why can't, why can't we get materials for this design, for example, that are more life-friendly or that are more equitable? And how can we ensure that, you know, the textile industry is a little bit more regenerative, which is a really cool project that the Biomimicry Institute got recently is to think about designing for decomposition. And they actually got a ton of funding for that, which is really cool to see that these conversations are starting and um, there's funding out there that are, that's, that's getting, um, you know, more projects to the forefront to market that are truly biomimetic and actually create conditions conducive to life. Cause that's been tough in the past. It's like you have all these cool biomimicry ideas or case studies, um, but it's just an idea or there's research behind it, but it, it's not actually funded to get to that next step. And that's, um, that's a huge hurdle right now in the biomimetic world. Um, but we're seeing those walls come down a little bit. I was going to say, I want to go back to the reconnect element yeah, because I think that a really important delineation in how we connect to nature is impacted by our smartphones and how we interface even with just one another, like human to human, creature to creature. And I, I scuba dive, so I follow all these scuba diving accounts, all these bird accounts on Instagram and social media. And I can even find myself being tricked into like experiencing the awe of seeing something new, but that's still not an authentic connection yeah. to going outside. Yeah. Like watching a nature documentary is not the same as going and mm -hmm. feeling the wind on your skin yep. and actually just enveloping yourself in that natural environment. Yeah. And it's tough because we rely so much on social media. Some people rely on it for their livelihoods. Right. Um, and for, I think it's an important tool. And I think there's a lot of people who despise technology and want it totally gone. And I do not think that's realistic. I think that we need to learn how to cooperate and adapt to technology in a way that allows us to be successful, but also healthy. And that's why like setting those boundaries, um, potentially having more federal regulations, cough, cough, um, around technology uses, especially for young people, um, because it is impacting mental health on a large level. And on the same note, reconnecting with nature impacts mental health on, on a very different level, on a very, very positive level. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like the antidote. Um, and so it's like this juxtaposition of having to use technology, for example, like I have to use technology to teach online. Um, and that's something that brings me a ton of joy and students are learning about biomimicry. But then I also ask them at the end of every week to spend time in nature to, to you know, submit their nature research journal prompt where they have to go out into nature and like they're kind of forced to spend time in nature because otherwise they might not. And it's like part of the assignment that's built in. So I think 
it's a complicated question and topic because a lot of there's a lot of systems in which people live that either don't allow them equal access to the outdoors. They don't have the same time that some people have to get outdoors. But I think there is kind of a spectrum of reconnecting. I think watching documentaries and getting excited about nature online is valid. I don't think it provides the same mental benefits as going outside for a 15 minute walk to even in the cold and the snow yesterday, the sun started to come out and I was just walking my dog and the sun hit my face and I saw this like the snow glistening in the trees and I had like a good five minutes of just like pure joy heart cup was filled again, even though it was three degrees outside. And I think moments like that, there's like this spectrum of, I can go backpacking and spend three weeks in the wild. We're out you know, in public lands or a national park or something and be totally disconnected. And that is a very different experience and equally as important and very powerful to reconnecting. But there's also this like kind of every day, we just need to get outside. We need to start observing the natural world, watching the birds from our patio or our you know kitchen window. And I think those are equally as valid because we all live in, in such different like habitats on our own. Um, so I think, yeah, it's, it's a complicated topic. I'm very passionate about it. Um, I also think that, you know, nature is everywhere. Nature is around us. We are part of nature, which makes our cell phones part of nature. And we have to learn how to adapt to use them and do it carefully. Cause I mean, it is, they're a huge impact on us. Um, and recognizing that and taking a step back and going into nature without the phone <laughs> for a while. Um, like usually when I take my dog on a walk, I leave my phone at home. Um, so I can, you know, I go during the daytime, which I'm allowed, you know, privileged that I can do that when it's still sunny, which is before three 30 now, but usually like around lunchtime or something, I'll go out for a walk and really just enjoy the sun, what little sun we have and enjoy the snow and the breeze. Um, and, you know, see if we can see some birds. And I think that is impactful. I also spend many weekends outside hiking and snowshoeing and skiing, um, and rock climbing. And I think, that also has a huge impact on me because when I don't do it, I notice how much more anxious I get, um, you know, how, how much more kind of confined I feel and then how much less curious I am or how much less productive definitely has an impact on me overall. So that's something to note as well. Biophilia is a really important topic. That's kind of a part of the realm of biomimicry. And it's like the acknowledgement that we are part of the living systems being out in nature is really good for our well-being and our health um, and productivity and kind of all of that. So it's all, yeah, it's all part of the spectrum. Yeah. From nature deficit disorder. Yeah. And you're right. I was in no way was I trying to vilify nature documentaries or social media. No, like, no, I know. I'm just I saying like, I feel things. like people like, get hard on themselves. They're like, Oh, I don't want to like, I want to put my phone down. It's like, yeah, we should put our phones down for a while, but also like being kind to yourself and like allowing yourself that outlet, if that's what you enjoy. Um, and then taking that knowledge outside, like, Oh, I learned about a cool bird on social media. Like I want to try to find this bird in my habitat or like don't know about like where it lives. Um, so in that mm -hmm. sense, like we can use technology to our benefit, but then knowing when to put it down is important. <laughs> Again, I just feel like every time that I talk about biomimicry, I want to talk about the case for biomimicry. So you're encompassing your emotional health. It also has this really strong sustainability component where you can evaluate how life-friendly, in quotes, your design is. Yeah, and that's a um, really cool tool that's in this biomimicry resource handbook that Dana wrote. Um, and life's principles is a topic that's often discussed in biomimicry. 
And that's this collection of patterns um, that have been um, observed over a lot of years from a lot of different scientists and kind of collected in this beautiful description. They're called life's principles. And there's, so there's 26 principles, six kind of main principles and then 20 sub principles. And it's an incredible tool because basically all of life as we know it on this planet has to do these things in order to survive. It has to adapt to changing conditions. It has to use, you know, green chemistry. Um, and it has to, has to do this to survive or else it won't be here um, or else it's going to eventually fade out. Right. And so it's a really good metric because then we can measure our own designs and say, well, how many of these life's principles are we able to address and really work into this design to make sure that it's as life friendly as possible. And I think it, it goes way beyond sustainability because it's not just something that's sustainable. It will be ultimately life friendly, regenerative, et cetera. So Life's Principles is a great tool. It's in that resource handbook. It's talked about on Ask Nature a lot. Um, and it's all kind of part of this way of thinking, I think, that um, is interesting and important to note when you're starting your biomimicry journey is kind of like knowing the tools and the, the lingo um, and kind of all of that and what it encompasses. And Ask Nature has a great description of all of that, which is free. The Biomimicry Resource Handbook has a really great description of how to use it, examples of that. The Resource Handbook does, it's worth an investment. I think it's about $100, but I've had mine for many years and it's a tool that I use constantly. So it's something that might be worth it. Um, and it's hard for our designs. I, I mentioned this before. Not many of our designs can get many of those life's principles because of the systems that they're created in, right? And so I think that's a big challenge for biomimicry. And I think one of the huge hurdles that we're going to see moving forward and potentially one of the huge game changers on the flip side, if we can move past that and get these systems in place that are more sustainable and regenerative, we can actually start creating biomimetic designs that are very life-friendly, that hit a lot of those life's principles. But we, it does require a lot of, it would require a lot of change. But yeah, life's principles are a great tool it's something I dive into a lot in my class and there's an entire master's class on it. So it is, it, it can be very overwhelming and complex, but it's something that's worth diving into if you're curious about biomimicry, because that's something that you can then think about when you're reading about case studies, for example, the new, you know, big biomimicry case study on some news outlet. Um, you're like, is this actually biomimicry? And you'd be like, how life-friendly is it? And you can kind of compare it to the life's principles diagram. Say, well, they actually don't have any of these. And it's using materials that are made out of petroleum and fossil fuels and blah, blah, blah. So it's an interesting um, tool to have in your tool belt, for sure. Is there anything that you want to button this up with? What should we end on? Yeah, so one of the biggest things that I would say, just to, to kind of wrap it up and summarize, is building that curiosity, going out to the natural world. Sometimes with your phone, I'm guilty of bringing my phone to take pictures. There's really great um, identification apps now, like Seek is a really cool app. You can like oh, scan yeah. a plant and it will tell you what plant it is, which I, I would used to think is like cheating because I you have to go back home and like look it through all the books. And right. <laughs> it like takes so much time, like plant identification. But using technology for good, I mean, imagine going out and like being able to identify all the plants on a hike instantly. Like that's pretty cool. Um, and being curious about the natural world, reconnecting, 
potentially starting a nature journal is something I highly recommend and love. Um, I haven't kept up on mine as well lately, but it's something that I bring into the natural world every now and then to start observe, like the observation process, right? Mm-hmm. Um, why is something, why does it look this way or why does it function this way? And then bringing that nature journal back to ask nature, that website, uh, asknature.org, a great resource. You can search in the search bar, um, diving into the ask nature resources more. So what are the papers behind Ask Nature? You can scroll down to the bottom and there'll be references. Starting to read academic papers can be terrifying, but it's also really empowering because you realize it's not that scary. And you can read papers and skim them. A lot of them are available for free. They'll have an abstract, which is a really good summary of what they're going to be researching. You can scroll to the bottom to find their conclusion or the discussion and know, you know what they found out pretty immediately. Um, and then understanding that biology is, I think, a really important part of biomimicry. And then also like doing the reading, getting inspired by what's already been done, those innovations that are out there that exist, while also keeping in your tool belt this knowledge of, is this actually life-friendly? Is this deep biomimicry? Is this well-adapted biomimicry? Um, And I think that's a really great um, kind of process. And then also education programs. There's a ton out there and way more now in the last five years than there have been ever before. So taking advantage of that is a really cool opportunity as well. Asknature.org has a ton of free stuff, but it's kind of like self-directed. You have to take your through, yourself through that process. Um, Learn Biomimicry, great website. The Biomimicry Commons, if you're working to start a company or you're in the entrepreneurial space and you want like a network of folks that are doing biomimicry in their field, Biomimicry Frontiers has a great program. And then if you want to pursue higher education, a space like ASU has a great online master's program. If you're ready to invest that money and that time, it's a lot of effort. Um, but it's totally worth it and a really enjoyable experience. And then there's a few PhD programs. So there's a lot out there that you can get um, really knee deep in and really immerse yourself in. And then also, last but not least, is knowing your community. There's often other folks in your town or your neighborhood that are excited about biomimicry. There's a few biomimicry Facebook groups that have been started, uh, mostly by students from the ASU program or the biomimicry professional program, which is another great program if you're interested in biomimicry training, um, that are already in your community. They sometimes do hikes if there's like a, a, a networking group or something, um, or if there's like a science center that has events and they have like, they bring in like a biomimicry speaker, like going to that and meeting the people there. Um, I. I realize that it's less relevant if we're going to be a little bit more remote for the next few months, but like just knowing that those communities are out there and there's other folks that are stoked about this. So meeting them and making those connections and then potentially going on hikes together or exploring the natural world together Um, because biomimicry cannot be done alone. It needs to be done together in a group collaborating, um, working towards, you know, understanding the world and, and what we can learn from it. Yeah, Lily, this has been great. Thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks, Andrew. Um, I'm actually starting my own podcast in a few weeks here. I'm going to be launching it in February. It's called Learning from Nature, the biomimicry podcast with Lily Ehrman. So I'll be your host. I'll be interviewing folks from a ton of different fields who are applying biomimicry to their own projects and career and life as a way to kind of showcase what's possible in this space. So I'm super excited to be launching that in the next few weeks. um, And I'll share that with you. But my Instagram handle is Lily Learns From Nature. Um, so people can find me there and I'll announce all the podcast stuff there. Great. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks, Andrew.